Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Judges chapter 4. It's found on page 203 in your pew Bibles. If you've been here the last few weeks, you know we're doing a series on Judges. And the story that we're going to look at this morning is distinct. And it's distinct because instead of seeing just one deliverer or one judge, we're actually going to see a team of deliverers. The deliverers are Deborah, Barak, and Jael. And then the antagonist, the oppressors in this story, are Jabin and Sisera. There's going to be a lot of characters in Judges chapter 4, so I'm trying to help you get it straight before we dive into it. So let's give attention to the reading of God's Word, Judges chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And it says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh, And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'anim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harasheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin the king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my Lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with the rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk, 
and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and hardened against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. Yes, I got through all those Hebrew words. This is the word of the Lord. Let's speak to us, your people, this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Among all the major world religions, what is distinct about Christianity? Over a half century ago, there was a British conference on comparative religions where they were debating this very question. And some of the answers that they came up with were these. Someone said, what's distinct about Christianity or the Christian faith is the incarnation. But as they talked about it, other religions had different versions of God's appearing in human form. Others said it's the resurrection. But as they looked at other major world religions, there were places where other people had claimed to come back from the dead. The debate went on for some time until C.S. Lewis walked into the room and he asked, what's the rumpus about? He heard in reply that his colleagues were discussing Christianity and what was distinct about it. Lewis' response was this, oh, that's easy. It's grace. Friends, the one thing that is distinct about the Christian faith is grace. And even when we come to a challenging story like Judges 4 and Judges 5, grace is evident and grace is illustrated even here as it is in the New Testament. And I'm going to work hard to show that to you this morning. And the way that I'm going to do that is to break this down into three parts. We're going to see the desperation of the people the sufficiency of the Lord, and finally, the revelation of grace. Let's look first at the desperation of the people. What should be a familiar line by now, in verse 1, it says, The people, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord sold them into oppression under uh, Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And it says they were oppressed for how long? For 20 years. And then it uses an adjective to describe this oppression. And it says not only were they oppressed, but they were cruelly oppressed. It was darker days. It was harder times than any of the oppression up until this time. Now, we didn't read Judges 5, but Judges 5 tells us a whole lot more about the desperation of the people. In 5.6, we are told that the highways were abandoned and that travelers kept to the byways. This means that there was chaos on the road and folks were afraid to travel because they might be robbed or they might be oppressed. 
Elsewhere in chapter 5, verse 15, it tells us that there was also great disunity in the nation of Israel. When the call to battle went out, the tribes of Reuben, Gilead, Dan, and Asher, they sat still and they watched. And we are told in 4.4 that Jabin subdued the people by the commander of his army, a man named Sisera, who was especially cruel. And if you look in chapter 5, verse 30 and following, you would hear a little bit about the description of him. He was notorious for abusing women, for trafficking women, for stealing and raping women after war. These were desperate days for the people of Israel for 20 long years. But not only were the people of Israel desperate, the leaders of Israel were also desperate. Notice in verse 4, Deborah summons Barak, telling him that the Lord has commanded him to gather an army of 10,000 to go out and to fight Sisera. And the Lord has promised him that he will crush him. Yet what happens? Barak balks. He pauses and he says, I'm not so sure about that. I'll only go if you'll go with me, Deborah. Now, we can, be e- we, can, we can easily throw Barak underneath the bus and say, look, you should have immediately gone out and done this. But if you consider this story, he was a military strategist. He was a thinker. He knew that he was going up against great odds and he stood no chance. You can imagine the conversation in his head might have gone something like this. We are outgunned 900 chariots to zero. We are outpositioned from a hill to a valley. And we are also outmanned. They have 40,000 troops. We have 10,000 troops. You see, at this time, there was a transition from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age. And if you had chariots, you were going to demolish anyone in your path. And Barak knew this. He knew he was facing a greater force, so he paused. He was desperate. Barak was desperate. The Israelites were desperate. Now, I know a lot of you are Downton Abbey fans because I see a lot of your Facebook feeds, but I'm not a Downton Abbey fan. I haven't seen any, uh, I haven't seen any episodes of it, but I will admit to being a fan of Parenthood, which uh, ended this past week. And Parenthood has been running for six seasons. And one of the reasons that I'm drawn to Parenthood is because it shows life, I think, really well in difficult situations. It shows the reality of desperation. I think most people, when they watch it, can't keep from crying. I haven't yet, but I do get teary-eyed a little bit. But it shows through these six seasons a family wrestling with everything from cancer to autism to divorce to adultery to death and everything in between. And you see all of these characters, one after the other, who are desperate for love, who are desperate for a job, who are desperate for meaning in a job, who who are desperate just for their kids to be healthy and to be successful, who are desperate to find love. And I think that shows all of us something, that whether we're a believer, whether we call ourselves a Christian or not a Christian, not a follower of Jesus Christ, at some point in our life we either have been or will be desperate. Do you know what it means to be desperate? It means looking at a situation and realizing you don't have the goods 
or the resources to solve it on your own. It's when you realize, I'm in trouble and I need help. And there's a whole spectrum of desperation, right? You can be desperate to get an A on an exam. You can be desperate to get into the right college. You can be desperate to finally get that job you always wanted. You can be desperate to get a particular promotion. You can be desperate to get any job. You can be desperate to be healed of some ailment. You can be desperate for one of your children to be healed from an ailment. You can be desperate in so many things just for something in life to change. Have you felt that way before? Do you know what it's like when you've tried everything you know and your hope has faded and all you can do is say, why try? Do you know all of these situations are a result of what Christians call the fall? When sin entered the world, desperation entered the world because this creation has been separated from God. And the question that we have to wrestle with, what are we going to do with that desperation? And there's a great answer in this text. We want to see the sufficiency of God. No doubt there's a team of deliverers, Deborah, Barak, and Jael. But I would submit to you that the main character, the hero of this story, is not Deborah, it's not Barak, it's not Jael, but it's the Lord. And if I had, you know, a whiteboard up here, I would show you the structure of chapter 4, but I'm not going to pull it out. But in chapter 4, the central verse, the central theme, the central point is chapter 14, which says what? The Lord goes before you. The hero in this story is not Deborah, uh, Barak, or J.L., but it is the Lord. Okay, when we look at these two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5, chapter 4 is told from an historical perspective. So if you're a historian or an engineer, you really like chapter 4. Chapter 5, if you read it later on your own, is poetry. It's written by an artist. So if you're an artist or you like poetry, you'll really like chapter 5. Chapter 4 tells us what happened. Chapter 5 tells us why it happened. Let's look first at chapter 4. Even in chapter 4, we see the central point that the Lord is the one who goes before Israel. How else do we see the Lord as a central character? Who is the one who sold them into oppression? The Lord. Who is the one to whom the Israelites cry out to? The Lord. Who is the one who speaks to Deborah? The Lord. Who is the one who has a word for Barak? The Lord. Who is the one who makes promises to Barak? It is the Lord. Who is the one in verse 23 who subdued Jabin? It is God. And notice also in verse 11, we see this interlude that seems strange that we're told where Heber the Kenite, you know, set up his tent. Why? Because even in that small detail, we see the sovereign hand of God working out his providence that a trader setting up his tent in the wrong area, God would later use to subdue a foreign enemy. We see that God is ruling and overruling all the details of this story. And chapter 5 really celebrates this. 
If you look in verse 4 and verse 5 in chapter 5, it says the Lord is the one who marched out to war. And then it says that God lured them to Mount Tabor. So in chapter 4, we basically read that Sisera was defeated by Barak, but we're not told how. In chapter 5, we're told how. You see, when Barak went up on Mount Tabor, Sisera was lured out because he thought he could surround the mountain and then starve them out and kill them. But on their way, they were going through the Kishon Valley. And during the wet season, it was a river. But it was a dry season, so they had no fear of going down the Kishon Valley. But at this moment, the Lord opened up the heavens, and it rained. And it caused mud. And these powerful 900 iron chariots were stuck in the mud. And Deborah said, go. And Barak and his men ran down the mountain, and they won the victory. We see in this story, even against great odds, the Lord is the one who is the hero of this story. The Lord is the one who is behind all the details of this story. He is the deliverer behind the deliverer, the general behind the general, the weather behind the weather, that everything in this story and everything in our lives is under the rule of a sovereign God who works all things for his good, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes for his glory. Friends, you need to understand this story and you need to understand the Bible. You see, the Bible is not a story about a book of rules of simply of what we're supposed to do and not do. It's not simply a book of heroes that we're supposed to emulate. It's a book about one hero. It's a book about the hero God, a sufficient God who has sent his son to a desperate people to redeem creation. It is all about him. It is his story. He is the deliverer. He is the savior. And we see it in this story that the Lord is the focal point. He prepared Deborah. He summoned Barak. He used Heber's disobedience. And he routed the superior army and used a woman to kill the commander of the army. Friends, the Lord is sufficient. Amen. I just had to say that there. It felt appropriate. So we see the desperation of the people. And we see the sufficiency of the Lord. And it's amazing when we look at this because we see unlikely people that God is using. And he delivers them in an unlikely manner. And he delivers them in an unlikely place. And we learn something unique about our relationship to God. We learn that our relationship with the sufficient God is based on grace. Let me show you four ways that we see grace in this passage. The first way is this. Understand that you are never too insignificant to receive God's grace. Now, where am I getting this from? Notice that two of the three deliverers or judges in this passage were women. In this economy, women would have been considered insignificant. So it is unusual that we have a female serving as part of the role of the judge, really providing the wisdom here. And Deborah is to be applauded. She's, she's held up as the mother of Israel. She's esteemed as being the most godly of all these judges. But that God raises her up is still surprising. And even more that God would use Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, a traitor in a random location 
that God would seemingly use this random insignificant person in an insignificant location to accomplish his purposes. Friends, you are never too insignificant to receive God's grace. No matter what the world's opinion is of you, no matter if culture tells you that you are not important, that you are not powerful, in God's economy, in God's creation, all of us have equal dignity and worth and value because we are created in the image of God. So I hope that you experience that if you are here, that there is no one insignificant in the kingdom of God. And friends, we are to treat no one as if they are insignificant. The second way that we see grace in this passage is this. You are never too late to receive God's grace. How long did it take for the Israelites to cry out to the Lord? 20 years. I don't even like when my kids wait one week to apologize. And if I'm the Lord, if you come and you repent at five years, I'm going to be like, okay, I'll forgive you. If you repent at 10 years and cry out, I would have preferred five, but 10 is better. You know, 10 is okay. And then you might cry out at 15. All right, you're pushing it. But 20 years they waited to cry out to the Lord. It's never too late. And notice Barak. Do you know that Barak is mentioned in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11? And do you know what Hebrews chapter 11 is about? It's the heroes of faith. Do you know who's mentioned in Hebrews 11? Abraham, Moses, Noah, and do you know who else is there? Barak. Even though he was fearful to engage the army unless Deborah went with him, he was still considered a hero of faith. Friends, the bar is set really low. (laughs) You are never too late to receive God's grace or to be used by him. The third way that we see that God relates to his people is this. You are never too weak to receive God's grace. When Barak looks out and there are 900 chariots, you go, whoa. There's no way in the world we can win this victory. I get that. Do you get that? You know, a lot of people have compared ministry to baseball. You know why? Because if you succeed in baseball just three out of ten times, you're considered an all-star. In ministry, it feels that way sometimes. That in counseling situations, we walk into lifeless marriages. We walk into rebellious teenagers. In missions and evangelism, we share the gospel to people with hard hearts and we wonder, is there any hope? Friends, if we don't start with a big God who is full of strength, we will never engage our own weakness our brokenness or the brokenness and the weakness that's around us in the world. You see, when God called Abraham, he said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. If you don't start with a big God, you'll never engage with your weakness. But if we know the strength of God, we can engage our brokenness and we can engage weakness in the world. You are never too weak to receive God's grace. Number four, you are never too broken to receive God's grace. Do you realize in verses six through seven that God declares this promise of victory before the performance? Do you get that? 
that God has already declared that they will win the battle, that victory is won regardless of their obedience or disobedience. God makes promises before the performance. Do you understand that's the gospel? Do you understand that when we repent of our sins and we place our faith in Jesus Christ, instantly and legally, we are declared righteous before a holy God before our performance ever comes into view. You see, we don't, you know, uh, obey in order to be accepted. We're accepted and therefore we obey. The promise comes before the performance. That's the gospel. That's grace. Friends, to repentance and faith. God's covenant is, I will be your God and you will be my people. And even though you don't uphold your end of the covenant, I'm going to send my son to live the life you should have lived and die the death that you should have died. That's the gospel. That's grace. That's what we see illustrated in this story. We see that when a desperate people encounter a sufficient God, they discover that they are never too insignificant, never too late, never too messy, never too broken to receive God's grace. And the other thing is we approach this table to think about the instrument, the manner in which God saves them is surprising. God uses a tent peg from Jael to subdue the enemy of the people of God. He uses a tent peg. Setting up the tent was considered woman's work. And so this tool of a woman is used to subdue this great warrior who has 900 chariots and subdues the enemy of the people of God. Now think about Christ. How did Christ subdue sin, death, and Satan? Was it through great military might? Was it through great swords? Was it through spears and chariots? No. It was through his death. It was through the cross. It was through some other wooden pegs that he was nailed to. You see, it was in a surprising instrument of redemption here, a tent peg. And we are saved by a surprising instrument of the cross. And even now, the way that we are strengthened in our faith is through the surprising instrument of the bread and the cup that by grace, through faith, this meal actually strengthens us to fight against sin, death, Satan, doubt, weakness, brokenness, all the things that we struggle with, this meal is meant to encourage our souls. So as we approach this table, in whatever area of life that you're desperate, take a few moments, confess that to the Lord, and ask Him to show His sufficiency, that He's enough, and His grace in your life. Let's pray. Father, this is a familiar story that we know too well. That when sin entered the world, desperation entered the world. But thanks be to God that we have the gospel that when Jesus entered the world, desperation exited the world. So Father, in this meal, in this time, we pray that our desperation 
would be cast onto you and that your hope and the reality of your resurrection and the assurance that you have defeated sin, death, and Satan would be made apparent to our hearts and minds that our faith would be strengthened. And so, Father, now we quietly pray to you asking you to do amazing things during this time.